millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a 45,000-mile adventure with Manisha Rajesh and her book, Around the World in 80 Trains. Manisha Rajesh is a British journalist whose writing has appeared in Time magazine, The New York Times, The Guardian and The Sunday Telegraph. Her first book, Around India in 80 Trains, was named one of the independent's best books on India. Manisha's latest book, Around the World in 80 Trains, A 45,000 Mile Adventure, is what we're going to be talking about today. Manisha, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So let's, I guess, talk about, first of all, why trains? What is the fascination (laughs) with trains? Ah, do you know, I get asked this question a lot and I often give people an answer that I think they're not really expecting, which is that I had absolutely no interest in trains when I set out to do my first book, funnily enough. I never had a railroading family. I didn't have any kind of fun stories from being a kid and visiting my grandparents by train or anything like that. It simply came about as a kind of byproduct, I guess, from my first book. And when I set off to do it, it was almost a kind of method by which I then hoped I could meet lots of people and gather all these stories that I wanted to get. So so for people who've not read the book or don't know anything about the first one, um, Around India and 80 Trains came about after... I was reading an article at work about how India's domestic airlines could connect 80 cities. And I'd lived in India very briefly when I was a kid in 1991 for about two years um, from the age of nine to 11. And at that point, you know, when you live somewhere, you, you never really explore it properly. You, and you tend to only really do it when you're about to leave. But in that two years, we only ever stayed in the city that we lived in, which was Madras, now Chennai. And I've been to Hyderabad a couple of times to visit family, but I'd never gone kind of around India. I'd never gone to see the Taj Mahal. I'd never been to, you know, Rajasthan. I'd never been to Goa. I'd never been to Kerala. All these, you know, amazing places that everybody talks about. And all my friends had been on gap years then. They kept coming back and telling me how brilliant India was to travel around. And I thought, this is my motherland. I don't know anything about this place, really. Let me go back and give it another chance and see whether I can kind of I guess rekindle a relationship with it because I, I didn't have a great time in that two years. I'd, I'd grown up in Sheffield and Harlan, kind of all over Yorkshire, and to suddenly get plucked out of that environment and suddenly end up 
living by the beach in Madras and going to a very different type of school was it, it just didn't sit well with someone at the age of nine. So I wanted to go back and give it another chance. And I thought, how do I meet people? How do I get to chat to kind of every cross section of society? How do I really kind of get into the bloodstream of the country? And when I was looking at this article, I drew up a map of India and I could see this kind of incredible network all over it. And I had no idea what it was. It just looked like embroidery kind of rippling out all over the place. And I looked at the key and it said railways. And I thought, blimey, that's that's pretty extensive. And immediately I thought, oh, imagine traveling around India in 80 trains rather than 80 planes. And it just sounded so daunting in my head that I just immediately dismissed it. And I thought, no, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I kind of forgot about it for two or three months. And it just kept coming back to me bit by bit. I stood lying in bed thinking about it. I thought, but what if, what if you did travel around the whole of India by train and you would automatically come face to face with people, you would be able to just chat to people and get stories out of them. And I just thought, no, this is too much. You know, if this, if this was a possibility, someone else would have done this before. And I started looking up um, on Amazon for books about Indian railways. And I could obviously find, you know, Michael Palin had done bits of a journey through India and Paul Theroux had done bits, but no one had done like a full on length and breadth of India by train. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. And so I did. I just bought an Indian rail pass, which was a 90 day pass, which cost me about £350, which included all my second class sleeper trains, including overnight, some of my meals. And I went, I managed to rope in a friend of a friend who was a photographer who just been made redundant. So it was kind of, it just seemed to land on my plate that I had this ready-made traveling companion. And we went away for four months and literally the second day we'd arrived in India, got on the first train. And then the book came off the back of that. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I just had a website, 80trains.com, that my best mate from school had set up. And and I just kept sort of documenting it over the weeks. And I guess that sort of developed into the book. And by the end of that trip, I realised sort of, I mean, it didn't take me the last train to realise, but pretty soon I thought, I love these trains. I absolutely love the freedom that they grant me, the way in which I can, in one train journey, in 34 carriages, I can start at the top in first class and I can chat to, you know, ambassador to The Hague, who I did actually chat to, to politicians, to students sitting there with laptops and playing cards, all the way down to the very bottom carriage where there are farmers, you know, with really old weighing scales over their shoulders, squatting on wooden slats and chattering with each other and offering out paper bags full of guavas. And I could chat to all of them and everybody in between. And and when I set off, I did actually have this worry that I wouldn't come back with enough stories and no one would talk to me. And actually, the bigger problem I had was that I had so much by the end of it that it took me more time actually to sift out everything that I wasn't going to put in than what I did put in to the actual book. And so that is where my love of trains came from. And, and I thought maybe it's just Indian trains. But pretty soon afterwards, I just found myself kind of like my ears would prick up if I heard a train horn and I'd lie in bed listening to these hoots at nighttime, which bizarrely enough, when you live in London, you can actually hear if you leave your window open. They could be from anywhere, but you can hear these freight trains in the distance. And, and I just found whenever I went on holiday, I would always try and find a local train and hop on. And you just get to see so much of a city or a town winding through its guts on a train. And it's just, trains just throw up all these these secrets that you know cities have. And and so that just became a bit of a kind of almost a sickness, I guess. <laughs> and so that's what 
sort of developed into around the world in 80 trains because I knew I wanted to do it again like you know try and get on some more trains and try and see if what Indian railways had could be replicated in another country and I chatted to my agent about it and he said well could you do China maybe South America and for me language was the problem I knew that I needed to be able to talk to people so traveling around China was going to be hard and you know my Spanish is pretty basic and I don't know any Portuguese so Latin America would have been quite hard too and then he just said, well, how about just doing the world? <laughs> and I thought, no, that's even more batshit crazy than doing India. But again, it stuck in my head. And I thought, well, let me pop off to Stanford's in Comet Garden, see if I can get some maps and see how possible this is. And it was possible. And I did it. And it took me seven months. And yes, it became it became around the world in 80 trains. So how do you go about planning such a journey because obviously trains are something that are extremely reliant on timekeeping oh gosh well I didn't do an enormous amount of planning and I know that's not for a lot of people but that's how it works for me and that's what makes me most comfortable when I'm traveling oddly enough I'm more comfortable when I don't have a plan and I don't have a schedule just because I I very much need that freedom and so I, I I mean I wasn't daft I made sure that I booked the big routes for example the Trans-Mongolian which goes from from Moscow to Beijing and I'd got that sort of all locked in and then I booked the Canadian from Vancouver to Toronto and Oddly enough, the key bit for me in the whole seven months was getting to North Korea on the 4th of October. There are a few companies that are British, but in Beijing, and they take tourists into North Korea pretty regularly. And I was completely unaware of this. And I discovered that there was a company that could take me into North Korea. And it was a train tour, but they only did this train tour once a year. And that train tour left on the 4th of October and got back to Beijing on the 15th. So my entire seven months of research literally pivoted around this trip because they only did it once and I had to get there so I put a pin in a map in Pyongyang and I wrote 4th of October on a post-it note and then I put 15th of October back on Beijing and everything else I did had to fit around that and that included being in Tokyo and Osaka and Hiroshima for the 70th anniversary of the atomic bomb and so that was 6th of August and then I had to be in Nagasaki for the 9th and so I had got post-it notes everywhere with these dates of specific places that I wanted to visit for specific reasons and then I kind of sewed everything in around it so once I got those massive trains and I got those dates the rest of it just sort of fitted around and I wanted to make sure I had enough time obviously to to get the most out of each city or to each country but I was quite pressed with some of it because of those dates so you know some readers might sort of got to chapter and thought gosh you've whipped through Europe really fast but the other issue was visas and obviously once you've got your visa stamped in you generally only have about 90 days I think with which to enter and leave the country so I got my visas literally in the last week before leaving London I had my Russian visa got my Chinese visa and my Vietnamese visa and Mongolian visas and I had to make sure I reached all of these places within 90 days and that was quite tough so I did have to unfortunately whip around Europe very quickly to get to Russia um, and to then make sure I could get to China and then come back into China afterwards so it sounds probably a bit like a big spaghetti junction for most people but once I had this huge map on the wall and I'd got pins in and post-it notes and string connecting everything it sort of it just built itself I guess and I also gave myself little boundaries on either side of specific cities where I thought I'm going to Shanghai I'm probably not going to want to leave the next day I'm going to have fun here it looks like a brilliant city I'll give myself three days and then I would 
you know, book the train for the fourth day. But obviously, once you're doing intercity journeys and they're smaller, you've got so much more options. So if I arrive somewhere and thought, nah, not, not really feeling it, I could then leave that afternoon and it didn't matter. It's not like when you fly and you've got to go online, you've got to change your ticket and lose some money. I just didn't have that issue. So I could just hop on and off at will. I should just say as an aside, because obviously this will be broadcast at some point in the future, but we are recording this show on the 4th of October, which is yeah, oh my God. the anniversary of <laughs> you being in Phnom Penh. Oh my gosh, <laughs> look at that. Yes, that is. It's exactly ooh, six years since I went into Pyongyang. I mean, who knew? That's, gosh, that's quite fortuitous. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say something about the very start of the journey, where obviously, you know, you, you crossed the channel over into Europe, and back in the uh, dim and distant past, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, I went and did interrailing a couple of times around Europe. And, and one of the things that struck me about your book is that, you know, wow, it's fantastic that, you know, mainland Europe has this incredible infrastructure of high-speed trains. One of the things that it sort of removed is those great overnight sleeper services i remember going from paris to madrid for instance on a on a sleeper train and and those things just seem to have been retired phased out yeah so interestingly enough that you bring that up my next book is called midnight express tales from the night trains which i've come up with because there's actually been a resurgence of sleeper services in europe i was keeping an eye on it over the last year or so because i could just sense that something was going to happen not necessarily because of the pandemic, but I think it's probably encouraged it or sped it up a little bit. But you're right that night trains have definitely been retired and phased out. And I think that's a lot of that is down to budget airlines, high speed trains. And that was one of the reasons why I guess I literally sped through Europe, because there just weren't very many sleeper services left. We we did one overnight from Madrid to Lisbon and it was really uncomfortable because there were very few actual sleeping compartments on board and they'd all been sold out by the time we turned up. So we ended up having to sit up in a seat overnight, which is not great generally. And especially when you reach a border and the guards come in and literally shine a torch into your face to check that you look the same as your passport. And I found the whole thing pretty hideous. But in the end, it's transpired that people do actually want sleeper services back If there's the option of having the comfort of a berth and traveling overnight and arriving in a city fresh in the morning, you turn up exactly where you need to be for a business meeting or whatever it is, and you can have your breakfast on board and you're saving flying. I think a lot of people actually want this. And there have been at least three different private companies that have promoted sleeper trains and crowdfunded and decided to resurrect them. And even last summer, I think there was a sleeper services running through Croatia which was fully booked within 30 days of launching. So the evidence is there that people want them. And I think very, very specifically now, because of the pandemic and the obvious problem of climate change that we cannot reverse, we can slow it down, but we've got to all be really careful and really mindful of how we travel. And I think for a long time, that's something that has bothered me, which is why train travel has been my preferred option. And obviously I have flown to do some of those train journeys uh, in Asia and, you know, in Central Asia and in Europe and whatnot. But in the seven months that I did 80 odd train journeys, I think I only took four flights. And I think that's something I'm going to even try and stop or at least reduce down to its bare minimum. And I've seen people being a lot more conscious about how they're choosing to travel now. So I think these sleeper trains 
I hope that there's going to be a resurgence. Uh, I hope there'll be more. But I think Europe, like you said, is probably the one place where they have been phased out. But around the world, sleeper trains are still really populated. They are absolutely the preferred way of travel for, for most people, especially in Asia, where the price range between taking, for example, you can travel from Beijing down to Shanghai in six hours on the G10 Gaotier train, which can take... I can't even remember what the, the distance is, but to give you the idea, you can also take the overnight train for two nights and the price difference. I mean, it's probably something like a fifth of the price. And so naturally there are working class Chinese people or laborers or farm workers who absolutely couldn't even dream of taking one of these bullet trains. And they are usually just taken by business class people or you know, people just can't be bothered with the hassle of going to an airport, checking in, you know, the travel time on either side, because invariably airports are on the outskirts of cities. And these trains drop you right into the centre. Bam, you're there in the middle of the city centre, you get out and you're there. You can do whatever you need to do really easily. So, you know, it, Europe certainly has a dearth of them, but the rest of the world absolutely doesn't. And I don't see them fading away anytime soon. I saw that myself while I was travelling. Um, and it was also really, I was really heartened by seeing that because for me, nighttime trains and sleeper services are they still kind of encompass the romance of rail travel and the best interactions I've ever had with people have come from being in those compartments and wondering who's going to come in next because you know for journeys for example I went from Xining in China to Lhasa Tibet it was a 56 hour journey and in that four birth compartment we must have had about you know 12 or 13 different people come and go and, and I love that about train travel that at any point somebody new just enters your story and you feature for a little while and they're a character and they play a role and then you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and they've gone and there's somebody completely new in that berth under that blanket you think oh my friend is gone and I'm never going to see them again but you you're always left with that that fleeting nature of friendships I find only really comes from night trains and I love it and I really hope that when I sort of come to research my next book that I find more of that here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Your list is a little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Manisha Rajesh and we're talking about her book Around the World in 80 Trains. And Manisha, in the second part, let's look at some of those classic train journeys that you took there. You've already mentioned the um, Trans-Mongolian line from Moscow to Beijing. So tell us something about that journey. Oh my God. (laughs) I think that was... Funnily enough, I have actually been asked about that train two or three times in the last few days um, because I've if I'm allowed to say, I have another book out at the moment called Epic Train Journeys. I did it during lockdown. It was It's a big coffee table book that I did um, with Gestalten Publishers who produce these really beautiful books. And they asked if I could choose 50 of my favourite journeys, which was, to be honest, just a bit of a dream project because I had obviously done all the research already. And it was wonderful to kind of relive all of this at the time when we couldn't travel. So, um, in the last couple of days, I've been asked a little bit about this. The Trans-Mongolian is the one train that everyone wants to talk about. And I think that's because it is so infamous, notorious. There are so many wonderful myths and legends about this train. And also, I think because it is like it's such a kind of key train in the world connecting the West to the East. And without that train, you can't really actually get from one side of the world to the other. And it for me, it hinges this this divide. It's it's an extraordinary journey. People who don't actually know the kind of intricacies of this sort of railway geek technology or terminology, sorry. It's not actually one specific train. There is no Trans-Siberian Express. There is no Trans-Mongolian Express. There's a route. So the Trans-Mongolian route goes from Moscow uh, through Irkutsk in Siberia, down to Beijing through Mongolia. And the Trans-Siberian takes a kind of big semicircle right across, in my eyes, the kind of view for the world, and goes right through Siberia and Russia and loops all the way around to Vladivostok on the furthest east coast of Russia. But the problem for me there was that if we take in this train, the only way to kind of get back is by sort of backtracking for another few days from Vladivostok across and sort of redoing some of that route. And I didn't really want to do that. So I've kind of left that for myself to do one day again. And I think I'll probably do it in winter just to have what will probably be a completely different experience. But the Trans-Mongolian, which was the route I took, goes from Beijing through Siberia, through Ulaanbaatar and then down to Beijing. And like most people do, we broke up that journey. It's about four and a half days, I think, from Moscow to Irkutsk. And for a lot of that time, I won't lie, you are just sort of lying in bed and looking out of the window at birch trees that have no leaves and they look like a whole big stack of unsharpened pencils and it's very grey. And you start to forget what day it is. <laughs> and it could be Tuesday, it could be Wednesday, it might be Thursday. But the whole kind of fun of that train is very much centred on the people that you meet and I think anyone who's travelled on either of those services knows that the dining car is the hub of all the action Um, and even when when we boarded on Monday it was probably about 8 20 in the morning and there was this Euro trance playing from the dining car and it was just this thumping tinny metallic music that pretty much went on for four and a half days and so if you're someone who likes your peace and you're quiet and keeping to yourself and reading books and not talking to anyone else, this is not a train for you because you will not be allowed to disengage from everybody around you. You are very much kind of brought into the fold. You will be offered cottage cheese blinis. You'll be offered, if you're lucky, a can of Stella from a four pack, which is often a breakfast staple. Um, but you're also kind of invited to share. And there's a lot of swapping going on with not just food and drink, but also stories also, you know, souvenirs. I spent a lot of time exchanging coins and stamps with our Provotnik, who is, I guess this equivalent is a train attendant manager who's in each carriage. 
and their job is to bring your bedding and to just basically keep an eye on everything and make sure there's nothing untoward going on. And it's just, it's such a community on board that train. And for the first leg that I did from Moscow to Okutsk, we were actually booked onto the domestic service, which I didn't realise at the time. I mean, I realised very quickly after we boarded that it was the domestic service because there were no other foreign travellers on board um, and also bring brown people. We were literally the only brown people on board. And in fact, I think the only brown people they'd ever seen, which um, neighbours told us and, and they said, you know, what are you doing on this train? It's trash. And I realised that most tourists and students and backpackers take what's called a Rossiya service, which is slightly plusher with more comfy seats and sliding doors, you know, I think little lamps by the bed, whereas the one we had was quite a hard berth and the windows didn't work and the air conditioning didn't work. And But it was, that was the best way for me to travel because it threw up so many more stories and I had so much more to say. And I got to chat to just regular Russian commuters who take this train all the time. And I think that was... That was one of the bits that was so fascinating to me that the Trans-Mongolian is often considered bucket list train for so many people. But for some of the people that I met on board, this train was literally used to commute. And one of the chaps that I got chatting to was brilliant. I had two people called Alexander and Alexander in the compartment next door. And one of them was a lawyer. And he said, I take this train every two weeks to go to court hearings in Kirov. And he said, just, you know, feel feel bad for me because this is how I have to travel because the roads are so bad. And I thought, wow, this is, this is something you do every two weeks. And a lot of people will save this up as a bucket list train to do once in a lifetime. So, you know, it's, it's, it really helps you get your perspective as well on things when you think about how what's tourism to you is just a kind of everyday reality to somebody else. But I think for me, the best bit about this train journey was what you actually see outside the windows. And often you get so bogged down on what's happening inside and you're playing cards and you're, you know, writing in your diary, you're trying to read War and Peace or pretending to read War and Peace. And then it sort of turns seven or eight and people start disappearing into their compartments or drinking. And you're just alone in the corridor and you look out the window and you think, my gosh, the sky's turned red. When did that happen? And why is it red? And why is the sky this colour in this part of the world? Or, you know, look at the way those mists are swirling around those trees. I've never seen this landscape. And when you started reading your chapter, it was you were going past Silver Lakes and now there are mountains. And when did that happen? And you just get to see this magnificent part of the world that I think most people don't actually get to see unless you live there. Because you are travelling from one point to the next. It's that in-betweenness that this train journey reveals to you. And it's such a privilege to get to see that kind of landscape because it's so in the middle and the midst of vastness. And I hate using this term in the middle of nowhere because I realised very quickly nowhere is not actually nowhere. There are villages, there are tiny towns, there are people living there, there are schools, there are communities. And it's actually quite rude to say in the middle of nowhere because it's not nowhere to them. But you don't ever really get to see these places because no one would actively choose to go there. But on a train, you are sailing past all of these things all the time. And I know that I would never see them again and so you find yourself just kind of gripping onto it you want to make those scenes last for as long as possible and you just want to soak it all up and try and remember it and so I think the Trans-Mongolian or Trans-Siberian whichever you choose I understood by the end of that why it's such a such a kind of key train journey to rail fans and travellers everywhere 
You also take a massive cross-country, in fact, an enormous loop in the US on the Amtrak, various different Amtrak services. And I think thinking back to what you said about rail travel in India, it's sort of fascinating to, to contrast an enormous populous country like India that is absolutely brilliantly set up to travel between cities wherever on railways and somewhere like the US, which absolutely isn't. Yeah, it's, oh, so... I had various issues with travelling around the US, or at least various prejudices, let's say. Um, one of which, which was which was not unfair, was the fact that Amtrak has, and certainly did at that time in 2015, I think an average of 30 derailments a year. And I discovered this through a quick, unfortunate Google when I just got onto the first train from Toronto to New York on the Maple Leaf and my heart just sank. And I thought, how on earth did that tiny detail escape me when I'm about to do six weeks on Amtrak and I have a very high chance of being involved in a derailment? But, you know, fortunately that didn't happen. But, you know, Amtrak trains are old. They are so old and you're so aware of that when you're on them because they clank and they shudder. And at nighttime, they rattle and you pretty much do stay awake, I think, for most of the journey, just hoping that if you do actually fall asleep, that you wake up alive and in your destination. But that aside, they still have an incredible charm of their own. And, and again, that's because of the people. And I found it quite funny that most Americans would say to me, oh, my God, I've never been on an American train before. What, Amtrak? I mean, who, who even takes Amtrak? No one takes Amtrak. Everybody just drives from state to state. But that's actually not true, you know. Middle class people might not take Amtrak, but there are a lot of people who do. There are people who are afraid of flying. There are people who have had their driving licenses taken away from them. Uh, there are people wanting to just escape their lives. And I met all of them and everybody in between. Uh, there are so many people who ride Amtrak for different reasons and you get to sit opposite them in the dining car. And that was one of the best bits of traveling for that month. That the way that they're set up in the US is that you don't have a choice who you sit next to for, for your meals. There's a little bell and you get your sitting. It's, I mean, it's all very kind of 1950s um, in a wonderful way. And you turn up and you just stand there at the front and the attendant will come over and count you and say, are you two, are you three, are you four? And she will just say, right this way and point. And you can suddenly find yourself sitting at a very small booth with two people opposite you and the two of you slide in and you just have to sit face to face for the next 40 minutes while you're served your hot meal. And you have to chat. You have to chat to each other. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you're going you will find something to talk about. And those kind of setups threw up some of the most incredible conversations that I think I've ever had on board trains. One of the journeys between Chicago and Seattle on the Empire Builder, we were sitting across from two German Baptist brethren and the lady had a bonnet and she had a cape buttoned up to the chin and the gentleman had braces and he had very high trousers and he had a very kind of distinctive beard, which was no moustache, but just the beard, which just almost looked like a chin strap. And my husband just said, so so you're Amish then? And he said, no, we're not. And I, again, my heart sank and I wanted to die. And he said, we're German Baptist brethren. But he said, we have a lot of things in common. And he asked my husband what he did. And he said, I work in tech sales. <laughs> and he said, well, that's good for you if you found something that you enjoy. And we had a chat about how they shoot squirrels and they deep fry them and how they do have a refrigerator because otherwise food goes off, but they don't have a telephone and they don't have a car and they do still use pony traps. And 
it was just the loveliest conversation because we had something in common, which was the destination that we'd rely on trains, that they were incredibly grateful for the fact that they had this train service because otherwise they wouldn't be able to travel to visit their family. And I think they, their daughter lived in Idaho and they said, without this train, we wouldn't be able to see her. And for that, we're so thankful. And the word thankful came up so many times. In fact, they they stopped right before they started to eat and asked if they could say grace. And they asked us to join them. And I haven't said grace since primary school. And it was just a really lovely moment. And I knew that if I'd been on any other form of transport, that would never have happened. And I would never have met those people. And that's why I think people who mock Amtrak or are just kind of dismissive of it don't really understand the magic of it. Well, having then, I mean, it was me who disparaged Amtrak by <laughs> of it. Having disparaged the um, the railway network of, you know, the richest country in the world. I guess we should finish off the interview talking about your journey to North Korea. Oh, okay. Yes, absolutely. So this journey to North Korea. I have to say North Korea wasn't top of my list of places to visit in my lifetime. But because this train journey was there, I thought, I have to do it. I have to do it. I've got to get this into my book. And it's natural curiosity. I can't come up with any other kind of nonsense response as to defending why I would travel to a country that's ruled by dictators and has gulags and has such a severe human rights issues. I was fully aware of all of that. And that's why it was a big decision to make as to whether or not I would travel there. But I am a trained journalist. I have you know, I did, a, I did a master's in journalism years ago and I had my journalist hat on when I was doing this book. And I think being a nonfiction book writer as well very much means that when I do my travel writing, I'm very precise about everything that I do. I, I do it almost from a sort of reporter's mindset. And I had to have that hat on when I chose to go to North Korea. I thought I've read many things about it. I have read, you know, kind of quite obvious propagandist pieces from the North Koreans, but also from Western tourists who've been. And we can only believe what we've read. And I wasn't willing to do that. And I thought, if I've got the opportunity to go to this place and watch history unfolding, which is literally what it was like, then I'm going to take it. And and so I went. And it's nothing like people will tell you about being frightened, that it's a, it's a terrifying place to be. It's none of those things, because the North Koreans very much rely on tourism for their income. They need tourists to come. And, you know, they take this company takes people in about 100 times a year. They do so many different trips. They do the train trip. They do the Pyongyang Marathon. You can go in and out for four days to just visit. You can go skiing. You can do all kinds of things there. And I I had obviously misgivings about the whole thing, but I, I read a few books before I went. So I had enough of an understanding about what I was seeing so that I wouldn't get completely sucked into the a sort of story that they feed you about the Kims being the dear leaders, the great supreme leaders, the founding fathers, and how everyone is so grateful to them for the benevolence and everything that they've given. But equally, it's very difficult traveling somewhere like that when you know that this is a is a dictatorship. You know that the people there have never left the country. You know that they can't. They have no passports. They're not allowed out. They aren't allowed to, to read anything that's not prescribed. They can't go online. They have the equivalent of an intranet, which is obviously stuff that's just forced upon them. Their TV channels are, I think, just one propagandist channel that plays just stuff about the Kims all the time. But I wanted to see this for myself. And I got to chat to the guides who were assigned to us as soon as you arrive. There's 15 of us on this tour. And we arrived in Pyongyang and we had four guides assigned to us straight away. And the interesting thing about these guides is that a lot of them are diplomats children and so they speak really good English and they are fully aware of 
what the Kims are. And I found that really difficult to reconcile because I thought, you know, one of them had grown up in Beirut, another one had grown up in Madrid. And I thought, but you know, you know everything about them. You can't have not read about them while you lived there as a teenager. So why on earth would you come back after that? And I found out that what actually happens is that when families, diplomats' families are sent abroad, they often keep one sibling or just a member of the family back in Pyongyang to make sure that they come back for that child so they can't defect or leave or they will punish the remaining families or extended families so they always have to come back and it's really hard for them specifically because they obviously know what it's like and what life is like in the rest of the world and one of the guides particularly I was told by the English guide who who led us in there she said well Whenever we go to the mausoleum, which is where you can see the embalmed bodies of the Kims lying in state, she said he always deliberately goes outside and covers his shoes in mud as a kind of private show of defiance against them. So she said it is really hard and he found it particularly hard to integrate. Um, And often the guides will just talk to the English guides about what's happening and they sort of just keep it all quiet between them. But it's very frustrating for them. And we were able to chat to them to some degree. And that's something that you're not going to get if you don't visit the country. And you don't get that human interaction. You don't get to speak to them, watch them, see them in their environment. And specifically being on the train as well, because our train went out of Pyongyang for 10 days around the country, went to cities like Chongjin, Hamhong, Wonsan, which don't normally get tourists. And it's much harder there to put on a show because Pyongyang is kind of considered the showcase city where everything is geared around letting tourists believe what they see. But, you know, in practicality, that's not possible. You can't just set up a showcase city for tourists. It's it's really not like that. And you do see commuters getting on buses. You see them cycling. You see them wandering the streets with their children. You aren't allowed to chat to them. You can't go over to them and they can't speak English anyway. So there's no point. And I think one of the difficult things is not being able to do things that you would normally do when you travel. You can't just wander into a shop. You can't leave the hotel. You can't just go off for the afternoon by yourself. It's all in a led tour and you're led to restaurants and you're led to a shop and you're led to a bookshop to buy books. And the books are all about the Kims. But it's still fascinating to see. And the bits to me that were really important that I took away were being able to play pool in the basement of the hotel with a group of North Koreans. They were just having beer in their vests and smoking and having a game of pool. And they asked us if we wanted to join in. And so we did. And it felt no different to me than any kind of random game of pool in a pub, except we were in North Korea playing pool with people who have never left their country. They aren't allowed to leave. They are so mistreated. And yet for that 20 minutes or half an hour, they got to play with us. And I hope that they were able to see that whatever they've been told about foreigners, because it's never very complimentary, is not necessarily true. And that they can see that British people or Americans or Japanese, because there were a few Japanese in our group, who are also very much kind of North Korea's enemies, but they're not all bad people. And I hope that what we taken over there was as beneficial to them as what we were able to take back. And one afternoon, we were able to join in on a dance rehearsal, which was about 300 students all dressed in their national costume. We were able to join in with these students and hold hands with them. And that for me was probably the most memorable bit of the 10 days just holding hands feeling their warm hands and thinking I'm holding hands with these people right now and there is nothing that draws any of us apart we are just young people having fun in a warm evening enjoying this dance and this music and we're laughing and it's funny and I hoped that they would remember that as much as we had I might be very kind of I don't know hopeful a bit deluded by thinking this but I'd like to think that it was the case and Also to just hope that one day those people will be freer 
and be able to remember those things and for their life to be different. And I wanted to see it as it was happening and to at least come away thinking that there would one day be hope for them and that their lives would change. And I wanted to also come back and report fairly about what I'd seen because I had read so much that was just so incorrect, I realised after I went. And I also got to chat to people on the tour who had been many times before, which I found quite interesting. That that was another element of it that fascinated me was that I obviously chose to go as a journalist as a one-time adventure, I guess. And there was a gentleman from Canada there who'd been 10 times. And he said, I come back every year because I'm monitoring how it's changing. And I can see it's getting better. He said the food is better, their facilities are better, the infrastructure is better. So I have hope. And it was really heartening for me to hear that and to be able to document what he said and and his experiences. And I think as a traveller, you've got to be you've got to be really open minded about where you're going. And under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have chosen to travel there because of the obvious issues. But being able to go there, meet people, document something. And come back and bring those stories to people is, I feel as a journalist, a privilege that you have. And you have a responsibility to do it well and to do it correctly and to not get people's stories wrong. And I hoped that I was able to do that. So I've been talking to Monisha Rajesh. We've been talking about her book, Around the World in 80 Trains, a 45,000 mile adventure, which is published by Bloomsbury. Monisha, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I've had so much fun. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 